The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. It's Monday morning, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Hello, I'm Roger Hearing. Now, what are we looking at today? Well, we're looking at a kind of rebellion, a rebellion growing amongst Boris Johnson's own side against his emergency virus powers and the rebellion's gaining momentum. MPs are going to decide on Wednesday whether to renew the law that lets ministers bring in new rules without parliamentary approval. This seems to be something that is getting even more controversial by the hour, Seb. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's now a cross-party group calling for a veto before any new powers are announced. Remember, this is an amendment to the Coronavirus Act when those regulations come up for debate on Wednesday. Not even guaranteed that the amendment's going to be selected. There's some debate over whether it's appropriate, and the Speaker, of course, has the final word there. The Tory backbencher Steve Baker, though, who's one of the leaders in this, says he's certain the bid will succeed if the opposition supports it. It's all about MPs having a vote on the government's policy before it comes into force and takes away people's civil liberties. So members of parliament are feeling increasingly helpless as their constituents complain about real impacts on their lives, their jobs, their prosperity. And we do now see that members of the opposition do seem to be lining up behind it. We spoke earlier on Bloomberg Radio to the deputy leader of the Liberal Democrats, who wasn't going to commit to it as yet, but was saying they're certainly interested. And all this comes as new cases show no signs of slowing. 5,700 yesterday, numbers approaching 7,000 at the end of last week. The Times reports the government's preparing for a total social lockdown across much of northern England, including closing pubs, bars and restaurants. The health minister, Helen Waitley, said she didn't want that, but she wouldn't rule it out. Well, let's speak to somebody who represents part of Northern England. Joining us now is Chris Clarkson, Conservative MP for Hayward and Middleton. Um, Chris, I've got to start you on these uh, potential new virus powers, or at least the power for MPs to, uh, to, to back or veto them. Is that something that you would support? Um, I won't be voting for it. Um, I've known Graham for a, a great number of years. He's, he's a good friend. I can understand what he's trying to drive towards on this, but I just don't think it's the right approach. Why not, though? Because this is surely a question of accountability. MPs should surely have the ability to overlook government uh, views, see what's going on in the end, give their permission for this kind of real reduction in personal liberty. Well, it depends whether or not you look at this as an emergency situation, which I do. I think the government has to be agile and it has to be able to respond to things quickly. 
Um, it's a bit like saying Winston Churchill should have come to Parliament and asked every time he wanted to send out Spitfires. I, I think we've got to be realistic. This is a developing situation. We've got to be able to react to it quickly in order to try and, and stem the virus. I think if we end up going through lots of parliamentary theatrics every time we have to make a, a, a serious and difficult decision, we're going to end up spending more time talking about things than doing things. The argument, though, then, is that this doesn't get, or any rules don't get scrutinised enough. And indeed, if you look at a lot of the country, the numbers are rising. Does it not feel now that a sort of social lockdown that's being mooted is inevitable in some parts of the country? Well, no, I don't think it is. I mean, my constituency has been under um, additional measures for a number of weeks now, and they are actually starting to, to sort of arrest the rate of, uh, of infections, whereas, for example, Graham Brady's seat wasn't, and, and you saw them going up. Now, that means that uh, that was an, an instance of the government making a tough decision very quickly, but it had the right approach, and, and it did the right things. Uh, I think we have to be able to react to the situation as it develops. Now, to be fair, there is actually a lot of scrutiny built into this. I have weekly meetings with my chief executive. We make recommendations to the health secretary about what measures should and shouldn't be in place. That informs the decisions that he makes. There are delegated legislation committees. I've sat on some of those where we review the, the measures that are being taken and discuss whether or not they're proportional. Um, you know, the opposition get a chance to weigh in on that too. I think this is adding an extra level of of involvement that isn't entirely appropriate to the situation. But is, if it's to do with liberty, essentially, and people like Steve Baker are saying that's what it is, uh, there is a risk here that giving away powers in a crisis, it might be quite hard to get those powers back afterwards or to, to get rid of them, if you like. Uh, and this is an issue for the kind of libertarian uh, drift of, of conservative politics, which is very deep in you and I, I imagine, and many of your colleagues. Well, I mean, you will find few, fewer people more uh, libertarianly inclined than myself. I, I'm not somebody who naturally trusts the government. So I always say I want to reduce it just about the size you can drown it in a bathtub. But being realistic, this is a massive global crisis. And I think we've got to be realistic about what's happening. It's all very well and good sort of debating the fine points of civil liberties if people are getting infected with a virus that could kill them. All right. What about some of the other rules that the government has brought in of its own accord? The 10 p.m. curfew doesn't really seem to be having the desired effect. I mean, you will, I'm sure, have seen the pictures of the weekend, hundreds of punters all mingling out after leaving pubs and bars at the same time. Surely this just hasn't been thought through. I disagree. I mean, I was talking to publicans over the weekend and most of them have been able to adapt to it quite you know, sort of quite quickly. I had that conversation because obviously we've seen the news reports, but... I think what you're not actually seeing in the press is the sort of hundreds of instances of where it's working perfectly well, because that doesn't make for good copy. Mm, but solidarity would make for good copy. And I noticed that in Parliament, the bars aren't following the 10pm curfew. Well, I only read, I only read about this uh, this morning myself. To be honest, I've not been using them. Um, like a lot of MPs, I put on quite a bit of weight during lockdown, so I'm uh, I'm trying to have a few weeks off the uh, off the pop. So quite frankly, if they do want to put a curfew in, that's probably a helpful thing to do at the moment. And what about the situation in universities? I mean, we've got now thousands of students forced to isolate in their accommodation. A number of the, or at least one member of the government's pandemic modelling group saying that this was entirely predictable. And when you take this uh, alongside the situation with exam grades uh, and uh, with uh, other further education uh, incidences from the government, it starts to build up as potentially another fiasco here. No, I don't think it is. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not over the moon about the idea of lots of students being locked in their halls, but 
I'm on the Science and Technology Committee. We actually had a session with uh, heads of universities uh, from the Russell Group and from Scottish universities, and, and they were very, very realistic about the challenges we were facing, and they were extremely committed to making sure that students who are starting this year are safe. Well, safe, yes, but frustrated and also perhaps in a point where it's very hard even to police these things and make sure it all happens. I mean, a lot of the feeling about a lot of these measures, Chris, is that it's very well to say them, but policing them, making sure they happen, is a much, much harder thing to do. And that itself can eat away at the confidence of people in the government and the way it's behaving. Well, I think being realistic, everybody's frustrated. It's extremely difficult, and we're asking people to make actually quite significant uh, personal sacrifices in some cases. But what I've, I've observed myself, and it doesn't seem to be changing, is that people are actually willing to make that sacrifice because they understand what the challenge is. Yeah, it's not how most people would have wanted to start university. I certainly think back to my own time at university, and yeah, it would have been extremely disappointing. But at the end of the day, they're at an educational institution to get an education, not to, to go out boozing. And you know, there'll be an opportunity to do that when we get back to normal, but we won't get back to normal unless people do what they need to. The problem, though, Chris, is that thousands of them are still sat in their own accommodation. They're not even able to go out and get an education. Would it not have been best to keep them at home so they're not mixing and not spreading the virus uh, and still getting the same level of remote education they'd otherwise get if they were in their rooms? Well, ultimately, that's going to have to be a decision for universities, uh, vice-chancellors and chancellors. They'll know how best to, to run their educational institution, and I'm, I'm certainly not going to try and second-guess them when they've been doing it for years. Chris, let's bring it back to, to what's going on in Parliament, because what's been noticeable, whether it's about this or, or about the issue to do with uh, the Brexit and the, 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 the markets bill that's going through, there's much more of a capacity, it seems, amongst your own colleagues on the Conservative uh, benches uh, to rebel against this government, to say, hang on a second, we're not going to go with this. And it's becoming quite damaging. You had to look at the Sunday papers and see a lot of talk about lack of confidence or confidence ebbing away in Boris Johnson's leadership. I mean, it's surely damaging to have uh, as many people as seem to be willing to rebel on this particular issue as well. Well, I think that's an inevitable consequence of a large majority. People feel that they've got a bit more scope to, to air their views. I don't necessarily think that's always a bad thing. I think sometimes you've got to be able to prove that your policies are the right one. A bit of internal opposition helps. That's certainly when the official opposition is not really doing their job. They don't turn up for debates at the moment. So, you know, we're, we're having to sort of pull in both directions. At the end of the day, you know, you're not seeing actual major rebellions passing. Um, we'll have to see what happens with the Brady Amendment. But I, I do think a bit of internal scrutiny sometimes a good thing. It helps to uh, refine thinking. And, you know, we've seen the government react to that in, in some situations. I don't think that's been a bad thing. And I mean, you're part of the 2019 intake. There's been a lot of talk about how you're very unique in the sense that a lot of you in the Conservative Party come from certain parts of the country and have had a very unusual experience in Parliament in that for the majority of the time you've been working there, it's either been remote or with some level of virus restriction. How um, united would you say you are as a group? There's been a lot of talk about WhatsApp groups, about organisation among you. Is that really the case? I don't, I don't think we're any different than any other intake. Certainly, I've got friends from other intakes who came in in 2015, some who came in in 2017, and they obviously feel an affinity with the, their colleagues who came in at the same time because these are the people they met when they first got to Parliament. In the same way, I've got you know good friends in my intake who I've met the first time when I got here, and obviously it's part of the formative experience I, I share an office with uh, one of my colleagues. Um, I, I think it's a natural way of behaving. I, I don't think it's unique to our group. 
but do you see any kind of solidarity going forward or is this the moment where you all break down and uh, really become perhaps some of the difficult people for the uh, for the government no, I, I think there's a strong sense of solidarity, not just in our group, but across groups. I mean, I, I you know, regularly sit down in the tea room with colleagues who have been here 20 and 30 years, and they'll talk to you just like you've been colleagues for that amount of time. You know, you're not some new sort of strange species of MP just because you have to come from the north rather than the home counties. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start with some new laws around the virus that come in today requiring people in England to isolate if they test positive or are told to by NHS test and trace. Yes, that was not the law until today. So police also conducting spot checks and acting on tip-offs to enforce the rule. This is making a lot of papers today. Those who don't isolate could be hit with fines of up to £10,000. The Home Secretary Priti Patel warning that ministers will not allow those who break the rules to reverse the hard-won progress made by the law-abiding majority, which is a difficult statement to make when we've had a, uh, a few infringements, haven't we, on the government's part in various ways recently. Uh, so yes. I can imagine that will come in for a bit of scrutiny from the opposition. You, you would think, wouldn't you? Uh, not least the fact, and we did raise this, of course, with Chris Clarkson MP just now, pubs and bars across the country can be shutting their doors at 10pm. It isn't the case. In Westminster, the Times reports facilities serving alcohol on the parliamentary estate, which basically means Westminster, are exempt because they fall under the description of a workplace canteen. That's a nice way of calling it. The regulations announced by Boris Johnson last week state workplace canteens may remain open. There's no practical alternative for staff at the workplace to obtain food. Hmm, sounds like special pleading to me. Anyone who's been there will know that it's not a canteen. It's just another boozer, and there are lots of them, and there's also a separate canteen. So a very difficult one to justify that one, and another U-turn, I'm sure, will be imminent. And then Boris Johnson today pledging to restore 30% of Britain to nature by 2030, part of a UN pledge on biodiversity that he signed up to. At the same time, though, the Telegraph reporting on a plan by Dominic Cummings under which seats in Tory heartlands will have to find space for one and a half million homes. So it doesn't sit too well with that pledge. The strategy there aiming to deliver five million homes across England over the next 15 years with nearly a third of them in rural counties. Uh, it'd be interesting to see where those end up being built. The green belt, of course, being sacrosanct even under the government's new planning laws, as we spoke about the other day. So they're going to have to find room elsewhere. Yeah, the leafy shires may uh, perhaps evoke another Tory MP backbench revolt. Let's see. Meanwhile, Brexit, unavoidable. The talks entering a key week. As you said, maybe their final week, although many of us have doubts that this round of scheduled negotiations over the UK-EU trade deal will actually be the end. However, it's beginning in Brussels tomorrow. Both sides are expressing cautious optimism that a deal can be reached, but the EU is stiffening demands over how one would be enforced after Boris Johnson's attempt to rewrite last year's divorce agreement. Well, joining us now is Naomi Smith, Chief Executive of the anti-Brexit pressure group Best for Britain. Naomi, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Now, it seems, at least if you believe the briefings that we were getting over the weekend, a deal may actually be in reach, despite all the rhetoric. So I suppose, Naomi, that's a bit of a success, isn't it? 
Well, hopefully. Um, last week's talks, of course, were informal, but we did have more positive noises coming out of them than previously. That said, of course, the EU remains very concerned about the internal markets bill, and the clock is certainly ticking for the British government to deliver that great Brexit deal that it promised at the general election last December. But the threat of the internal markets bill has not gone away. I suppose the government could pull it if a, tor- oh, if a deal was reached, but still it hangs there and the EU is playing ball. So this week, uh, the talks between uh, Michel Barnier and David Frost are the ninth round of negotiations um, and the last scheduled round. Um, And they are very crucial because there's this EU summit looming large on the 15th of October, just a fortnight away, and and this this sort of arbitrary deadline that Boris Johnson has imposed for a deal to be reached by. But of course, as you say, the government hasn't helped uh, the advancement of talks by uh, bringing this this internal market bill forward that, of course, threatens to renege on an international treaty, and that hardly makes you appear a trustworthy partner. I'm pretty hopeful that it's just aggressive posturing um, uh, and not a a legitimate threat, and certainly lots of other analysts from from across Brussels and Westminster seem to think that it's more of a smokescreen to keep Boris Johnson's sort of Brexit ultra-wing distracted while actually he will be busy making concessions to get a deal. Most people have always believed that Boris Johnson would to get a deal than to pursue no deal. Well, let's let's talk about this deal, no deal, because uh, your organisation, I mean, you oppose Brexit, obviously. However, it is coming now. That's unavoidable. So what to you in Best of Britain would look like a good outcome from these talks? Well, a good outcome for us, and, and I, I have to say, yes, we were anti-Brexit, but actually Brexit has already happened. It happened on the 31st of January this year. We're now just in that transition period. We fully accept that it's happened. So what our main concern is, is that the Conservative government delivers on its manifesto promise. It was given an 80-seat majority by the electorate of the UK last year to deliver this oven-ready deal, this great deal, this comprehensive deal, all these words that were used by Boris Johnson and his team going into that election. So for us, avoiding a no deal is absolutely crucial, but also to not just get a thin deal. It does need to be a comprehensive deal. We've done a major piece of work, uh, an economic impact assessment, that looks at the impact of no deal and getting that that free trade agreement that, that Boris Johnson said he would get in light of the coronavirus recession. And, and the UK is facing the worst, uh, if not one of the worst, uh, recessions in the Western world, um, the worst potentially for, for 300 years. And our work showed that the combined impact of no deal and that coronavirus recession will absolutely decimate parts of the northwest of England and the West Midlands, which are areas that are very, very important to this government because it was seats in in that area, the so-called Red Wall, Red because they used to be Labour-held seats for generations, flipped to the Conservatives at the last election, and they cannot afford to let those regions down. They also promised at the last election to level up the country. Those areas had been deindustrialized and left behind. And I'm afraid a no deal combined with the corona recession will have such a severe negative impact uh, that there is absolutely no chance of leveling up those areas. So what we at Best of Britain want is for the government to come good and to deliver a comprehensive deal. And there is still time. My goodness, the clock is ticking, but there is still time. You you talk about not wanting a thin deal. What would be what would constitute a thin deal? And I mean, I've I've got to pick you up on the time issue. Surely, even because of the coronavirus delays, 
it's going to be difficult to get something comprehensive given the state we're at now with these big points still outstanding tariff-free access. That, that was what was promised. And, um, uh, you know, UK and a changing Europe, which is a, a policy group that works out of King's College London last week, that the long-term negative impact of no deal could be two or three times as bad as any negative economic impact from coronavirus. The British Retail Consortium that represents all of the major supermarkets in the UK, such as, you know, Tesco and Sainsbury, saying that tariffs, if we have them, could add 3.1 billion a year to food imports and at Best of Britain, we also run something called the Affordable Food Deal, showing that, that tariffs on the most basic food items could be as high as 20% come the 1st of January, pushing people into food poverty, you know, putting 20% price increases on very basic staple items like pasta and tin tomatoes could, you know, be incredibly damaging for households that are already struggling with the end of furlough, unemployment rising, etc. So for us, a thin deal... Uh, would would uh, at the very least we would need it to to offer tariff free access so that we can keep people fed um, fed and and with the right medication we import huge amounts of both and we really cannot afford to disrupt either particularly this year. Let's focus on one issue that really has caused a lot of problems, which is to do with what goes on with Northern Ireland. I mean, it will be very familiar to you. The issue is whether, to what extent, Northern Ireland is outside any arrangement, if it has peculiar arrangements with uh, the EU so that the border can be kept open on the island of Ireland. What would look like a success now, realistically, coming out of these talks in terms of Northern Ireland? Northern Ireland has always been the elephant in the room and not enough was made of the significance of it during the referendum itself. I think what is also going to have to sharpen the focus of the uh, Brexit ultras, if if we can call them that, is the impact that um, having any kind of border on the island of Ireland will disrupt their ability to forge a trade deal with the USA. We've had uh, people from both the Republicans and the Democrats in the States, of course, uh, 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 candidate uh, Joe Biden for the presidency also weighing in on this to say if you disrupt that Good Friday agreement, uh, which absolutely would happen were a border to be put anywhere on the island of Ireland, then you can forget getting any kind of trade deal with us. So that is an incredibly thorny issue for this government. Naomi, I, just finally, let me ask you about, about you and your organisation. I mean, you, you, it's been a long, long road, of course, but we are coming to a point where this will all be done. What happens to your organisation? I think that we have to consider the symptoms that were signals that we were going to have a, a, a leave vote in 2016. Um, our country was, was pretty broken. Uh, there were you know, rising income inequalities. There were people who didn't feel that the proceeds of globalisation were being fairly distributed. There were areas that had been de-industrialised and neglected by successive governments of of all shades, uh, whether Labour, Conservative or Coalition. And so I think organisations like ours and this enormous pro-internationalist movement that the UK now has that it didn't have four years ago, you know, a million people marching on the streets against Brexit last year, groups up and down the country in rural areas, in, in towns and cities, who all now have been activated and engaged. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to work with uh, internationalists in all parties um, and in uh, and and with uh, politicians that are keen to make sure that voters don't again 
feel the need to kick against the status quo in quite the way they had to do in 2016. We've got to tackle the root causes that led to the Leave vote. Uh, and and we, need a, we need a happier, more progressive, more united uh, kingdom than we had before. And of course, that is, again, a threat because there's a threat to the United Kingdom posed by Brexit. And we're seeing increasing support for uh, an independent Scotland and Scottish elections coming up next May. So I think there's, there is a huge amount of healing that needs to be done. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.